Well, I'd like to invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As we begin a series in this book, I'm very excited to begin this New Testament epistle together with you. And uh, so for the, uh, for the beginning of this, I'd like to read just the first nine verses of chapter 1. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thus far as the reading of God's word, let us ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth, that you would grant to us faith, to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, and hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved in the Lord, the Apostle Paul first visited Corinth on his second missionary journey, which you could read about in Acts chapter 18. And as was Paul's custom, he first entered into the synagogue there in Corinth, and reasoned from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. And although he had experienced some success in getting uh, conversions out of the Jews there in Corinth, including the ruler of the synagogue, Crispus, and his family, he also faced hostile opposition by many of the Jews, just as he had experienced opposition uh, in, in Philippi and in Thessalonica, as well as in Berea. And so Paul did what any of you, any of us would do if he was kicked out of the synagogue. He moved right next door and set up shop uh, in the house of a man by the name of Titius Justus, uh, a, a God-fearer. He uh, began preaching and teaching right next door to the synagogue, <laughs> proclaiming the truth of Scripture. As I said, Paul had been uh, imprisoned previously. He had been beaten. He had faced a lot of persecution, and so you may wonder that Paul would have been fearful at the retaliation that would come his way, and, and perhaps even thinking about leaving Corinth so as not to create a spectacle. But Paul was encouraged to remain in the city when he received a vision of our Lord Jesus Christ, who said to him in a dream, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And so having received that encouragement by the Lord, being told that there were many there in Corinth who belonged to the Lord, 
Paul remained in the city for a year and a half, working with, uh, working with his hands, being a tent maker, living and working with Aquila and his wife Priscilla, who shared the same trade, and preaching and teaching the word of God as he established this congregation here in the city of Corinth. Now, those of you who are familiar with, uh, with, the, with the Mediterranean world, or perhaps if you have a map in the back of your Bible, I would encourage you, you could take a look at that map. The city of Corinth is located on an isthmus connecting the Peloponnese Peninsula with the rest of Greece. So Greece is basically broken up into two main sections, and there's this tiny little isthmus, this land bridge, about Four, or about seven miles across, and that's where the city of Corinth was and is, still is. It's, you can go to Corinth today. It's still located there. And having seaports on either side allowed for sailors who were sailing from either the east or the west to arrive in port, unload their goods, and transfer it across that tiny land bridge onto another ship. This would enable them to uh, uh, avoid the treacherous journey around the Peloponnese Peninsula. And this made Corinth, in addition to the fact that it also was, was the connection between the north and south of Greece, uh, this made Corinth a thriving economic center with many opportunities for success. But of course, also with all the common pitfalls that accompany a city that thrives on trade. Anytime you get so many sailors in one place, you're going to run into trouble. And Corinth uh, in the ancient world had made a name for itself. It was filled. It, was, it had rampant sexual immorality, prostitution, idolatry, and corruption. And that notorious city that had made such a name for itself, perhaps you had heard, you've heard things about Corinth uh, in, in the past. Well, that notorious city was actually destroyed by the Romans way back in 146 BC. And it, it was left in ruins for a hundred years. And only in 44 BC, so relatively recent history, by the time Paul's writing this, it was refounded as a Roman colony by Julius Caesar, and it quickly rose to prominence once again, its geographical location enabling it to become the third most important city in the Roman Empire. And so this city, the city of Corinth, was technically a Roman colony. The citizens of Corinth were citizens of Rome, and it was filled primarily with veterans, uh, uh, those who had served their military service, wanted to get away from the, all the, the hustle and bustle in Rome, and so they moved to Corinth. It was also filled with a lot of freedmen, those slaves who had gained their freedom and were seeking to make a name for themselves, and also others of the lower class who, read, who left Rome that was overpopulated, seeking opportunity for economic and social advancement, and the city of Corinth had all of that there. Those Romans were mixed together with many Greeks, native Greeks, as well as Jews who fled persecution because they were kicked out of Rome, made the city a melting pot of sorts. And so here we're describing a city where the economy is thriving. It's a pluralistic society where we're told that the most important thing is for you to make money so that you can advance your social status and have pleasure in life. Does that sound familiar? As I was studying this, I was struck by how this describes to a T 
21st century Americans and Southern Californians, especially people living in Orange County, we have so much in common with the city of Corinth. And so there is, I think, much to learn as we begin this letter and we consider how Paul writes to this church. I think we have much to learn uh, in the coming weeks and months. Now, one would assume that a church that was planted and nurtured by the Apostle Paul, he had stayed there for 18 months. You would think that a church started by him and nurtured by him would be on a sure footing and that no major problems would arrive, but it would be smooth sailing as Paul left uh, Corinth uh, to grow on its own. Well, sadly, that is not the case. Within a, a matter of a couple years after the departure of Paul from Corinth, which was probably around uh, AD 51, things went sideways. When we read this letter, we see the problems that were going on in the church. We see division. We see gross immorality. We see idolatry. We see abuse of the Lord's Supper, abuse of spiritual gifts, even those who were denying the resurrection of believers. And on top of it all, you sense that there is a disdain and a resentment for the Apostle Paul, the man who started the church in the first place. Well, while Paul was staying in Ephesus, which is just across the sea in Asia, while he was staying in Ephesus, upon receiving a letter uh, messengers uh, receiving word uh, uh, from Corinth, Paul penned this letter in about AD 55. And this letter, what we call 1 Corinthians, is probably at least the second letter that he had written to them, and at least two out of four letters in total that he would end up writing to this congregation. And so as we look at the letter, and in the, in the first three verses, we see what's pretty standard, a typical salutation. Boys and girls, when we're told, or at least when I was told how to write a letter in grade school, you start off by saying, dear sir, or dear so-and-so, and then you finish the letter by signing your name. You see, that makes sense if your letter is only one page long. If the person receiving the letter could immediately skip to the bottom and see who wrote that letter to them. But that doesn't make sense if you're writing a letter that has multiple pages or, as in the case of Paul, if your letter is written on a scroll that is rolled up. You see, there's no way you can find out who wrote the letter until, until you unwind the entire scroll. Well, you see, that's why in the ancient world, they didn't put their name last, but the author put his name first. That's why the first word in all of Paul's letters is his name, Paul. He starts off as was typical in the ancient world, by listing the author. But then he goes on to describe himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And an apostle literally means one who is sent out, one who has been commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to serve as a witness of the risen Lord. He'll mention that explicitly in chapter 15, where he says, last of all, he appeared to me. And Paul, speaking of the fact that he was commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ, being sent out to proclaim the good news of the gospel, Paul was consumed with this. This was his entire life. This was his uh, uh, identity as an apostle, one sent by Christ. And since he was specially commissioned by the Lord, he also bore the authority of the Lord in the same way that a herald of the king 
bears the authority of the king through the proclamation of the message, so Paul here reminds his readers that he has authority, that they need to listen to him, that they don't take these, uh, these words with a grain of salt, but that they take these words as equal authority with the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet he also needs to remind his readers how he exercises that authority. You see, they knew that Paul was an apostle. They knew that Paul had authority, but what they didn't like is how he exercised that authority. He didn't exercise his authority in the same way that the rulers of the Gentiles did, that the Romans or the Greeks did. He didn't flex his muscles. He didn't uh, uh, demand things uh, for uh, for his own purposes. But you see, he'll have to go on and describe, especially in chapter 4, what an apostle, how an apostle exercises his authority, that is, through living a life of suffering for the advancement of the gospel. That's how Paul shows his authority, through being a servant of all. He also lists, in addition to himself, this other man by the name of Sosthenes. He, said, he describes him as our brother Sosthenes. Now, it's interesting because if you go back to Acts chapter 18, describing Paul's time there in Corinth, his first visit there, we read about a guy who was actually beaten during a riot who, had, who went by the same name Sosthenes. And perhaps this is the same guy. And if this is the same guy who was beaten in Acts chapter 18, then he too, like Crispus, was a ruler of the synagogue who had converted to Christianity and now was with Paul in Ephesus, had become Paul's traveling companion, and was with Paul pinning this letter to the Corinthians with whom he was intimately connected. If this wasn't the same Sosthenes, after all, believe it or not, that was a common name in the ancient world. Uh, If If you guys are looking for name recommendations, Sosthenes comes to mind, rolls right off the tongue. Uh, This was a common name, so it could have been another person, but nevertheless, clearly he was connected with the congregation. After all, Paul calls him our brother. Clearly, he knew what was going on. But setting aside his identity, we might wonder at this point, what is his role in the pinning of this letter? You see, Paul lists him here, together with himself as seemingly as an author. It was very common in the ancient world, and it was Paul's practice to actually not pin the letter himself. Paul used the standard practice of actually having a secretary, one who would actually pin the words. And then Paul, if if on your own time, you could look at the very last verses of 1 Corinthians, Paul would write the, the, the final greeting with his own, with his own uh, hand. And so we see that at the end. He says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. And so perhaps Thosthenes here is acting in the role of a secretary. Perhaps he's the guy who would, uh, actually sat down and wrote this letter. But you see, it's very rare, and it's uh, no one else, is, with all the other letters we have in the ancient world, no one lists their secretary at the beginning of the letter. Paul doesn't do that in Romans For example, with Tertius, who wrote the letter, he doesn't list him as an author at the beginning. And so perhaps here, this this man Sosthenes' role is a bit more than just the secretary, just the one pinning the words as Paul dictates. Perhaps he also shares a, a responsibility and authorship of this letter as well. And yet, 
clearly Paul listing himself first and calling himself alone an apostle of Jesus Christ, Paul bears the ultimate responsibility for penning this letter, and it's also under, undergirding the authority that he had received from Christ that he sends this letter to the church of God that is in Corinth. That's what we see in verse 2. Here we now read of the recipients of the letter, the church of God that is in Corinth. See, it's important that Paul highlights that. Notice he doesn't say to the church in Corinth, but it's the church of God in Corinth. He needs to remind them to whom the church belongs to. You see, ironically, although the church of Corinth had was plagued with so many problems, they actually had a superiority complex. They were arrogant. They thought that they were the end-all and be-all of churches, and they had this sense of autonomy. And so Paul needs to remind them at the very beginning, this isn't your church. This is God's church. And he also, notice, uh, pins this letter to a particular church with particular people, with particular issues, but clearly he had a much broader audience in mind. And he makes that explicit there in verse 2 when he says, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Corinthians needed to be reminded that they were not alone, that they were part of the universal church of God, not the church of Corinth. They have the same Lord and the same Savior of all believers in any place who call upon the Lord, and that they are all part of the one body of Christ. This comes up a couple times in the letter where Paul needs to remind them He says, this is my law for all the churches. What I'm writing to you, I write to all the churches. And also a major issue in the Corinthian correspondence is a a collection that Paul wants to take up, an offering that he wants to collect from them to give to the poor Christians living in Jerusalem. So he needs to remind them that they are part of the universal church of God. They are part of the body of Christ. They are not uh, an, an autonomous church all their own. Then he goes on to characterize his audience when he describes them uh, in in verse 2. And you would think with all that we know about the church in Corinth, with all of the issues, with all of the sin that plagued this congregation, Paul would write something like this. To the church of God in Corinth, filthy, rotten sinners. But no, he doesn't characterize his audience that way. He doesn't call them sinners. Rather, he calls them saints. He reminds them. He reminds his readers from the very get-go of who they are in Christ. That is, set apart. Notice what he says there. To those sanctified in Christ. That word sanctified literally means to be set apart. To be made different. Set apart from the world and the sin that characterized it. That has happened. That's definitive. You are set apart in Christ Jesus. But then he goes on to remind them that they are called to act that way. So he reminds them of who they are in Christ, holy. And then he says, oh, by the way, now that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is what God has called you to do. In the same way that I'm called to be an apostle, you're called to be holy. And so he reminds them of their identity, their standing, but also their responsibility as believers in Jesus Christ. He calls them saints. Then we have 
the greeting or the salutation. And this is pretty standard in all of Paul's letters. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here with this greeting, with this benediction that he offers to his audience, Paul does something very interesting. He takes the typical Greek greeting that you would read in letters throughout the ancient world, which is kairain, greetings, and he tweaks it. He changes it from kairain to charis, grace, this richly loaded theological term. And then he couples with that the typical Jewish greeting, which is shalom, peace. And he adds those two things together, grace and peace, and he bestows it upon his listening audience. It's interesting that these two terms, these two concepts, put together encompass the entirety of the gospel. You see, only through the unmerited grace of God can we have peace. Peace with God as well as with our neighbor. And so he starts off by saying, grace and peace be unto you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul, remember, has received a very nasty letter. A letter sent to him by a woman by the name of Chloe, describing to him some of the major sins that are going on in Corinth. And he had received other reports of other abuses that were going on. And so literally Paul's sitting here as he's about ready to write this letter. He has a laundry list of very serious issues that he needs to address with the congregation. And you would think that he would want to jump right into that list and begin uh, uh, exhorting his audience and, and reproving them for all the sins that they've done. But before he does that, before he goes on to exhort his audience, what does he do? He gives thanks in verse 4. As Paul thinks about the congregation, the first thing that wells up in his heart is gratitude. He's thankful to God for these people. He's thankful, in particular, for the grace that God has given to them. And in particular, the grace that was given to them was manifested in that they had faith. Faith was created in their hearts through the preaching of the gospel. As Paul was there and he proclaimed the testimony of Jesus Christ, this legal message that Christ is risen, what did they do? Well, they believed that message. They embraced it by faith, and in so doing, they confirmed that testimony in verse 6. This is very legal language. Paul is, uh, is, is using a courtroom setting here. And he said that, that the Corinthian uh, congregation, when they believed that message, when faith was created in their hearts, that testimony of Christ was confirmed. It was made legally valid. Now, the fact, as we'll see later in chapter 2, the fact that they embraced the gospel means that they had been given the Spirit of God. Apart from the Spirit of God, natural man cannot embrace the gospel. It's foolishness to him. And yet the fact that they had received the gospel through faith means that they have the the Holy Spirit, and thus they do not lack in any spiritual gift. So that's why Paul's thankful. They have been richly blessed, richly bestowed upon the gifts. They've been furnished with everything that they need to grow, everything to be a fully functioning body of Christ. And so even in this thanksgiving that Paul pens at the very beginning, he again reminds the readers of who they are. They're the body of Christ. They have the Holy Spirit. They have everything they need to function as a well-functioning church. And the implication here is, if you have the gifts, 
use them. As he'll go on to say explicitly in chapter 12, you're the body of Christ. Each of you have gifts. Use those gifts for the edification of the body of Christ. Well, notice that although they have everything they need to pursue sanctification, they have everything they need for life and godliness to be a well-functioning church, certainly they have not arrived. And I think Paul makes that clear in verse 7. So he says, you are not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul here reminds his audience that they are still pilgrims on their way. They have not arrived. They are still waiting for something that is the glorification that they will receive together when Christ comes. And that's really what he'll get at at the very end of the book in chapter 15 when he speaks of the resurrection and how we as mortals will be made immortal how we as corrupt people will be made incorruptible, how we who are sown in dishonor will be raised in glory together with Christ Jesus. That's what we're waiting for. But in the meantime, we have been given the Holy Spirit, and Paul reminds his readers of that. But as they're waiting for that last day, as they're awaiting the coming of Jesus Christ, they're given assurance in verse 8. Notice what he says. He says, Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end. This word translated sustain is the same word in verse 6 translated confirm. It's a legal term. You are made, you are legally bound. You are validated. In other words, you are guaranteed to make it to the end. And so as this church struggles with sin, as they're influenced by the world around them, as they, they fall into gross and heinous sin, Paul reminds his readers that those in Christ Jesus are legally bound to him. They are guaranteed to make it to the end, and they will pre- be preserved guiltless in that day. You see, our final vindication that we await at the last day is now guaranteed because of our current justification. You see, we've already been declared righteous by God. In his sight, we are guiltless, and thus we are guaranteed, despite all the mistakes, despite all the sins, despite all the things that weigh us down, we are guaranteed to be declared guiltless before his throne because God has already declared us to be such. And that's why Paul, I think, at the very end of his thanksgiving, he reminds his readers that God is faithful. God is faithful. He'll say this again in chapter 10 when he says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your control. God is faithful even when we are faithless, as he says in 2 Timothy 2. Here I think Paul wants to remind his readers what he says to the Philippians in Philippians 1.6 when he says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so he reminds his readers who are struggling with sin and temptation in this world that God is faithful and he will not let them go, but that he will bring them to glory in his son. And again, he says that they are called. This is another word as as the Lord, as Paul says previously, you are called to be saints. Now he says you are called to the fellowship. This word fellowship is the uh, Greek word that you may have heard, koinonia, 
many ways to translate this word, many nuances to this word. It could be translated communion. It could be translated as here, fellowship, participation. Perhaps here, the best way to understand it is that we are shareholders in a legal sense, that we are shareholders in the sonship of Jesus Christ, that, we, that is, we are adopted as sons of the Most High God. And thus, since we have that relationship with God, that we can call him our father, we also have fellowship and communion with one another. So there's always both a vertical dimension to this word, but also a horizontal one where we have fellowship with God through Christ, but also with each other through Christ. And so as we sum up our passage today, as we look at the very beginning of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, it's interesting to note that a church, to a church that is in total crisis, which seems to be more conformed to this world than transformed by the renewal of their minds, Paul begins this letter by reminding his readers of who they are in Christ Jesus. He reminds them that they have been justified, declared righteous by God, that they have been sanctified, that is set apart from the world, that they are continually being sanctified and participating in the powers of the age to come through the Holy Spirit, and that they are awaiting final glorification at the return of Jesus Christ. And all of this comes from God through Christ, who, in case you may have missed it in my first reading of the passage, is mentioned in every single verse of our passage. Did you notice that? Look, look back again at verse 1. Called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, verse 2. Again, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both our Lord er, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, the grace that was given to you in Christ Jesus. Uh, verse 5, you were enriched in him, that is Christ. Verse 6, the testimony about Christ. Verse 7, uh, the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 9, the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Tack on verse 10, which also mentions Jesus Christ. And you have, you have more mentions of Jesus Christ than there are verses. You see, Paul's making a point that all of this comes from Christ. That Christ is the cornerstone. That Christ is uh, the one through whom we receive the grace of God, as well as peace with God and peace with one another. We are reminded of Christ's past work, what he did for us, his present work, as well as his future work. And we are called to live in light of all of that. Amen? Let's have thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you. Uh, for the fact that we are reminded of the testimony of Jesus Christ. We thank you that indeed you have given us your Holy Spirit, that you have granted to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel. But we pray also, O Lord, that we, uh, being reminded of these things, would act accordingly, that we would live lives that are consistent with the fact that we've been raised together with you, that we have been given your Holy Spirit and set apart from this world, called to be saints, called to be holy. 
So we pray, O Lord, that you would continue to sanctify us and build us up as we eagerly await and anticipate the day in which you will come and make all things new and glorify us together with yourself. We ask all this in your name. Amen.